Right. Are you sitting comfortably? Good. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to introduce this afternoon's session, and we've got two very interesting papers. To begin with, by Dr. Christopher Plum, who is temporary lecturer in museology at the University of Manchester, and he's done a lot of work on animals and animal menageries in 18th century um, London, and he's contributing a chapter on the zebra to a book that Sam is editing at the moment. Uh, and today he's going to talk about Lost in the Urban Jungle, Menageries and Museums. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, I thought I also should say that I can't take credit for editing that book. It's actually Sam Alberti uh, that's editing it. Okay. I was one day walking down Piccadilly early in the morning when I met a porter carrying a live kangaroo, which he was conveying from Mr. Pidcock's at Exeter Exchange to a person who had purchased it. The animal was fastened to his knot by the feet, and his head lay dangling over very near the left ear of the fellow who was carrying him. This, it seemed, was not a temptation to be resisted by the kangaroo, who, after smelling at the man's ear for a long time, gave it a terrible bite and nearly clipped it off. If, it, if the idea of a kangaroo being carried down Piccadilly is unusual for contemporary Londoners, it was not such the case in the 18th century, the late 18th century. There was a whole range of sites for exhibiting and purchasing exotic animals in Georgian London. <coughs> These sites, uh, now lost, were part of a large exhibitionary complex alongside museums for, for viewing animals. Uh, more so, uh, the point, uh, one aspect of this talk will explore the uh, exhibitionary relationship between living and dead animals. So uh, the central aspect of my short talk uh, will trace the historical phases in the development uh, in the trade and exhibition of living, living exotic animals uh, in London and will plot them out on an 18th century map of London. And I should say, in short, uh, that there really isn't an extensive history of this uh, commerce in exotic animals, uh, despite them being, uh, as I hope to show, a um, substantial part of uh, London exhibitions. So, um, do I need to lean nearer to the microphone, or is it fine? Okay. Right, so, despite um, start, uh, the, the theme of the talk being in London, uh, by historical context, uh, I will start in Amsterdam. And in late 17th century Amsterdam, uh, there were collections, uh, commercial collections of living animals, um, which were quite different to those uh, in London of that same period. Uh, so, here is a menagerie Van Blau Jan, uh, which displayed and sold. Uh, exotica brought in by the Dutch East Indies Company. Uh, and here we can see uh, a mixture of living and, and dead animals. So uh, there's animals chained up that, were, that are presumably alive, like parrot, a parrot, uh, sorry, a parrot, uh, a monkey swinging on a rope. And then there are animals which are uh, a leopard there chained up, and then animals which are also stuffed, like the porcupine here. And here's an internal another internal shot of the courtyard of Menagerie Van Blaujan. And we can see living animals uh, in cages and potential purchasers 
walking around the perimeter. So uh, in London of, this, of, the, of the same period, uh, the, the trading animals was much less well-developed. Uh, there were displays of animals in coffee shops and taverns, um, but they were more a sideline uh, of the proprietor. There were, however, itinerant bird sellers, like this, and this is from Marcellus Laroon's uh, Cries of London, uh, and it also, this work also showed uh, milkmaids and vendors of bread, etc. Um, so we can kind of infer that uh, itinerant uh, traders were a familiar part of the city landscape. And their trade was based on a much earlier trade, uh, a skill in uh, catching and training wild native songbirds. Um, so the trade in birds like exotic birds like canaries uh, was not established in London, but these animals were imported to the city, mostly by traders from the German-speaking European land, and then sent as packets for sale on a casual basis in taverns uh, and coffee shops. But eventually, they became more established. And so one of the earlier premises was the bird cage on St. James's Street. And so here it is, up there. And some early bird sellers, like Thomas Ward, at the Bell and Bird Cage on Wood Street, uh, uh, established around 1717. These were kind of approximate date, dates derived from advertisements, and were able to rapidly expand their business. Uh, by the early 1720s, uh, Ward had two premises in London, and he also published uh, several editions of his own guide uh, to looking and choosing uh, caged songbirds. So these birds, these, these uh, sparse bird shops uh, would later acquire more extensive stock and by the mid-18th century uh, became more substantial animal merchants. Uh, the 1750s and 1760s uh, were decades characterised for, for Britain by war and economic expansion. And this changed substantially the nature of animal exhibitions in the city of London. Significant growth in the East India Company during and after the Seven Years' War, as British territorial gains diminished French authority, brought in a large array of new animals. Advertisements in London periodicals and newspapers show that in the 1750s and 60s, animal dealers selling a, were selling a much broader range of animals than in the previous decades. These same animal dealers began, too, to use the word menagerie to describe their business, a reflection of a changing uh, stock and status. Many, like Edmund's Menagerie on Piccadilly, advertised a greater range of exotic birds, more parrots and less canaries, as well as new small mammals like chickmunks from North America. Others, like the City Menagerie on City Road, had a considerably larger repertoire of animals. In addition to the usual birds, monkeys, tigers, opossums and camels were all advertised as to be seen or sold. Likewise, the animal dealer known as aptly Noah's Ark offered a buffalo, wolf and crocodile in addition to birds. Joshua Brooks, an animal merchant, had sold birds from the 1750s and his successful businesses were significant in shaping the topography of the Georgian urban jungle. So his first premises in the 1750s 
well, in Holborn, over here somewhere. In the 1760s, his original premises had sold birds principally from Bengal and their, <coughs> and their American colleagues, colonies. Uh, from 1765, he sold an addition to animals, plants, trees, uh, seeds and shrubs, uh, and then extended his business to Tottenham Court Road, to sorry, New Road, the New Road in Tottenham Court, around here. These premises were advertised as well-kept and ventilated rooms where animals could be bought or exchanged. A catalogue available to customers itemised species as diverse as antelope, lions, monkeys and porcupines. By the 1770s, Joshua Brooks's business extended to a site on the Haymarket near Piccadilly. So around here. It goes off the map. So around here. And this site uh, was ex- an excellent opportunity to take advantage of custom from West London's wealthy elite. And this site was operated by Mary Cross, uh, his business partner, who had been the wife of another menagerist called John Cross, and uh, when I was researching my thesis, she was really the only uh, female uh, menagerist uh, that I found recorded. Uh, but this seemed to suggest that there may have been more. And Brooks produced a handbill for his Tottenham Court premises uh, in 1775. And this gives an impression of what his premises may have looked like or the image he wanted to convey to his clients. And here, uh, in a walled guard, well-tended walled garden, and a large house and ancillary buildings in the background. And he um, offered an immense range of uh, animals for sale. In fact, on this list alone, there are 160 avian species, including cockatoos, flamingos, and cassowaries. So, from all, so from all areas of the known world. And the use of the word zoologist here is really quite interesting because it's a very early use of the word zoologist. Uh, and uh, it kind of communicates Brooks's self-fashioning as, a, as, a, as an expert in uh, exotic animals, I think. And he claimed to be able to convey birds from any part of the world, either to or from uh, different locations. And this wasn't pure hyperbole because he could draw upon a network of agents and dealers. Uh, he had a botanical dealer uh, in uh, the American colonies who... Um, would send him parcels of these, uh, but during the Revolutionary War, these died off uh, and weren't ever restored again. His agent just stopped sending plants. So, this is what, uh, by around 1770, the urban jungle in uh, London looked like. So we have... Yeah. It's quite small, so um, I was hoping you could read it. But uh, K up here is Brooks's uh, Tottenham premises. Uh, H is Noah's Ark. And I is a city menagerie down here. And there's a variety of other ones uh, beginning, uh, beginning to form along the Strand and Piccadilly. There are a few images of the internal, the kind of in, in, uh, the insides of these uh, menageries and animal merchants. Uh, but this mezzotin entitled uh, "The Exhibition of Wild Beasts" gives some kind of impression of what these premises premises may have looked like. 
um, is interesting particularly because we can see spectators' habits, for example, they are carrying sticks, which they often use to poke animals into action or to point out uh, animals of note, as well as a, a gentleman here using an eyeglass. On the Strand, Gilbert Pidcock's menagerie was well positioned uh, for commercial success. By the 1780s and 1790s, West London was populated by an array of retailers catering for the fashionable metropolitan elite living in West London. Um, I mean, he, was, he worked uh, in the same area of town as merchants like Twining's Tea, Fortnum Masons, uh, and Wedgwood. Uh, he sold both living and dead animals uh, and toured part of his collection around the country as a travelling menagerie. The insurance records and wills of animal merchants like Pidcock, Brooks, and George Kendrick, and he had, a premise, uh, he had premises, I think, number 22 Piccadilly, or 42, um, indicate a robust trade in animals that was quite profitable and relatively stable. Their insured uh, possessions were those of typical middling sort uh, uh, Londoners, and they include books, china, glass, musical instruments, silver, furniture, and paintings. And in 1803, Gilbert Pidcock, Pidcock proprietor of this this uh, menagerie here, ensured uh, his uh, living birds, beasts, and preserved specimens uh, for a total of uh, £1,565, uh, which was so large a sum that the animals were itemised in a catalogue uh, that was held on the premises of their insurer, Sud Insurance. With a total worth of £2,400, Pidcock's assets were several times the sum of those normally insured by merchants and professionals uh, at Sun Insurance. Moving away from central London into leafy Chelsea, a different sort of animal merchant emerged in the 1790s. James Pilton's manufactory offered a complete design service to wealthy clients. He would provide both ornaments, ornamental cages uh, and enclosures for gardens as well as the animals and birds to put in them. So there were other places too in London for viewing animals, uh, which were part, part of a larger exhibitionary complex for seeing and being seen in the city. So we have here the Leverian Museum, Bullock's Museum at number 22 Piccadilly, and Ackerman's Repository of the Arts, which was a very popular uh, print shop, an art shop, uh, on the Strand at number 101. And, but there are other commercial sites too uh, for uh, consuming animals, exotic animals, in late 18th century London, including barbers, turtle warehouses, and perfumers. Civet, uh, which is a substance derived from the anal gland of a civet cat, uh, which is a small carnivorous mammal uh, from Africa or Asia, uh, was used to scent linen, produce pomades, handkerchief uh, scent, and to make perfumes, uh, as well as used uh, in uh, um, used as an ingredient uh, uh, for apothecaries and physicians, uh, but less so, less so by the late 18th century, mostly used in uh, perfume manufacture. And um, 
This was mostly imported into London, but, uh, but uh, it was seen as better quality to produce it on site. And uh, it was extracted about two or three times a week uh, from the gland of the civet cat with a small wooden spoon. spoon uh, and um, the civet would probably only live about two weeks uh, after extraction. Um, and that this secretion was the foundation of the luxury trade of perfumers was not something that they hid. They used the image of the civet cat, so there's a rather forlorn cat here, uh, on their trade cards and shop signs. Exotic animals in London in shops were also uh, a visible part uh, in, uh, of London in um, turtle warehouses. And uh, these provided the principal ingredient uh, for turtle soup. And this was a staple for sailors uh, in the West Indies, uh, but a delicacy to the British elite in England. And turtle houses stored their turtles alive in bran tubs, uh, and they were mostly concentrated in Covent Garden. And purchasers could select their turtle alive and then take them home, uh, from which they would dispatch them fresh to the kitchen. And the consumption of this expensive and sweet, buttery flesh, as it was, was known, became a, a synonymous in print, uh, print culture with the complacent and hearty gluttony of the city's elite. And so here we have a bloated City of London alderman uh, shown kissing and cuddling his favourite dish. And there's a bit here which goes, Of all life's dainties, says Kitchen, turtle is the most bewitching. And there he is, over there, kissing the turtle. Barbers and peruke makers, too, uh, could make a lucrative trade in the sale of bear grease as a pomade for hair and wigs. Uh, and the authenticity of bear grease uh, was paramount because less scrupulous retailers would try and pass it off as tallow from farm animals. Um, so bears were fattened in yards and uh, on the premises of barbers or wig makers. And ladies and gentlemen, all their servants, were invited in their advertisements uh, to come and see themselves their, their particular pot of grease cut from the bear. Um, properly powdered and shaped wigs uh, were, in this period, the hallmark of genteel, uh, genteel uh, hygiene and appearance and respectability and necessity for elite presentation in society. So we have here two women with their piled up wigs and they're actually wearing feather, ostrich feathers in their hair and here are the plucked ostrich chasing them, trying to get their feathers back. And so the grease used in these wigs provided the adhesion and texture required uh, to comb the hair and attach the, atta attach the attachments uh, into the voluminous styles of the period. And so as such, uh, retailers like Rees Perfumery Warehouse and Ornamental Hair Manufactory on Holborn Hill was required to wear and slaughter about one bear a month throughout the 1790s to, keep uh, to meet demand. And this was just one of many uh, uh, hair manufactories in the city. So around 1770 and 1815, late Georgian period, uh, this, this map shows how the principal animal dealers and, and uh, menageries in London have uh, con uh, consolidated um, 
amassed along the areas in West London, along the Strand and Piccadilly. And um, I'm going to read a few extracts from uh, the book of uh, the journal of Benjamin Silliman to illustrate how, uh, in this area of London, the living and dead animals on display uh, could be viewed uh, uh, within the space of an afternoon or a few days and were experienced as a part of a greater uh, lost uh, context for uh, urban exhibitions. Um, so Benjamin Silliman uh, was uh, 26 years old when he came to, to London and had been appointed as a very young professor of chemistry and natural history at Yale College. And so he was sent to London uh, to freshen up lecture notes and to buy books for Yale College's library. And his experience of viewing animals, uh, both living and dead in London, uh, is evocative of uh, the nature of ex um, animal merchants and exhibitions in London. July the 23rd, 1806. Having occupied my leisure hours of late in perusing Buffon, Shaw and other writers on zoology, I have been naturally led to visit the museums and collections of animals which are found in such perfection in London. With these, view with these views, I spent several hours before dinner in Pidcock's Menagerie at Exeter Change and at the Leverian Museum. There are not many mammals of and many animals of importance which one may not see at this time in London. To mention only a few of those which I've examined today, the lion and lioness, royal tiger of Bengal, panther, hyena, tiger cat, leopard, orangutan, elephant, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, great white bear of Greenland, the bison, elk or moose deer, the zebra, etc. Most of these were living. I was regret regretting, as I was returning home, that in all the collections of animals in London, there was no camel, and I had never seen one since I was a boy. With this regret on my mind, I had almost reached my lodgings when I was saluted by martial music, which I thought must proceed from a regiment of volunteers going out to a review. But, on turning the corner of Margaret Street, what should I see but a camel directly before my windows? The music preceded the camel, which was led by a man while a monkey dressed in a scarlet military coat with much seeming gravity was mounted on his back as a rider. August the 15th, 1806. There is a class of men in London who are called animal merchants. They keep both for sale and exhibition collections more or less extensive of living animals. Pidcock, whose menagerie I have already mentioned, is a dealer of this description. And this morning, I visited another similar collection, Brooks, at the corner of Piccadilly and the Haymarket. When I entered the apartment, the llama was standing with his head from me, and wishing to have a better look, a better view, I tapped him with my cane, when he flew into a violent rage and with great force ejected from his nose a greenish fluid into my face. I was glad to retreat a little, and every subsequent attempt to conciliate the animal's favour only produced a fresh shower. So, I hope to have communicated in this, in this short paper something of the close exhibitionary relationship between living and dead anim exotic animals in 18th century London. Uh, I haven't discussed in depth about how animals move between these establishments, but the close proximity of these uh, menageries and museums meant that it was, uh, it was both possible to view these animals uh, alongside one another, 
but in death, many of these animals from the menageries were uh, put into spirit uh, specimens or taxidermy specimens and sold to or donated to the menageries along the Strand and Piccadilly. Uh, so, for example, uh, a llama in Brooks Menagerie ended up on display in Bullock's Museum. Uh, so London consumers were aware of the relationship between exotic animals as both a product and an ingredient, and the live animals from which they derived. The growth of the animal merchants uh, linked in phases to the growth of empire and commerce. And so these phases of development, uh, uh, the growth of the urban jungle, uh, started with itinerant bird sellers and sporadic sales uh, in taverns, coffee houses, and then later in more specialised uh, specialized business, uh, businesses in the 1750s and 1760s. Finally, by 1800, uh, around 1800, when Benjamin Silliman visited London, large menageries occupied the Strand and Piccadilly. Thank you.